0: Cornucopia Radio presents Eric and I didn't need the two days Grace extended to us to decide On leaving Lee's office we set up camp in an empty room on another floor of the HQ building We talked to each other for two to three hours There was no one else involved in our new venture we had a task and can Blanche about how to perform it. This was the first time I formed my opinion of the man who sat in the same room as me. It was an opinion never to waver during the entirety of our undercover days together. The same opinion is intact to this day. An undercover school or, or training didn't exist. We had to make it up on the fly. If I was asked to write an undercover manual, this would be the first rule. If you worked undercover with a partner, you must be compatible. Compatibility doesn't mean you're clones of each other. <laughs> Eric and I could be like chalking cheese, but uh, we, we, we were compatible. Most detective works routine. The same applied to our new roles as undercover officers on our new environment. Much of the work was regular intelligence gathering, socialising in furtherance of spreading our cover story, <laughs> and of course drinking copious amounts of beer. All the while, we were masquerading as Steve Jackson and Eric Walker, car dealers. Nice guys looking for Eric's errant brother. The following podcast is brought to you by True Crime Investigators UK. But who are they? John was a police officer for 30 years, working locally and nationally as a detective. Sally was also a police officer for 12 years, and then retrained as a lawyer and practiced in criminal law. Now they're both retired and review cases of interest, some solved, some undetected. Throughout this series, they'll discuss the cases they're reviewing and interview relevant parties including police officers, suspects, witnesses and experts. The next case for review is the counter-drug investigation, Operation Julie, which took place in the mid-70s and an interview with one of the undercover agents involved in the investigation, Stephen Bentley.
1: We'd just like to say thank you very much to all our listeners for coming back to us. This is the second episode of four dealing with Operation Julie, which was a drugs operation back in the 1970s. What we heard in the first episode was Stephen Bentley, who was a young detective, and he was seconded to Operation Julie. The first part of his job was as part of a surveillance team watching the comings and goings at a house called Lissin, and that's in Carno in mid-Wales it was believed that that house was housing a laboratory for the production of LSD. So when that house apparently became emptied and the surveillance team gained access into the house and collected evidence from the basement, which proved that uh, it had indeed been used as a laboratory for the production of LSD. So from that point on, surveillance continued on... A couple, Doctor Christine Bott and her partner Richard Kemp, back at their cottage near Tregaron. And Tregaron is some fifty miles from Carnow, where Plas Lissin was, and the police rented a nearby cottage, which was called Bromwood, to eavesdrop on them at home. Stephen Bentley was called into a meeting with the detective inspector Dick Lee where he met DC Eric Wright for the first time. They were both asked by Dick Lee if they wanted to go undercover in a place called Llandowy Breffy, which is in West Wales. And their job would be to try to make contact or to observe a character known locally and known by his nickname of Smiles, because he was believed to be a distributor of LSD. Now, I'm sure everybody really wants to know what happened next. So let's go back to Stephen, who tells us all about the preparation that he had to make for taking on his undercover role.
2: We obviously realised, either at Dick's instigation or I'm sure we realised ourselves, that we would need to set up a cover story and do some preparatory work. So over the next couple of weeks, that's in fact what happened. Well, Eric and I spent a
3: lot of time together, mainly at his home in in a suburb of Bristol. Were you given any training at all on undercover police work?
2: (laughs) I'm laughing. Uh,
3: Zilch. Nada. Nothing.
2: Uh, Undercover training in those days did not exist. Uh, In fact, uh, the only undercover operatives that I was aware of back in 1976 at the time of Operation Julie, is that Martin Pritchard and Andy Beaumont were working together as an undercover duo in Wiltshire, mainly in Wiltshire, but partly in London too. They were both Thames Valley officers, and uh, uh, Martin in particular had done a lot of undercover work at the festivals, uh, the various festivals up, up and down the country, but mainly the Reading Festival. Where he'd uh, become part of the festival crowd. And uh, in fact, there's a story uh, abounds, and I think it's true that he actually became a festival organizer on one occasion. So, you know, there was, but there was no undercover training whatsoever. Uh, I don't even remember speaking to Martin about it. If I did, he probably said something like, you know, well, just just be yourself, or well, not literally be yourself, because that would give the game away. But um, it was—I'm sure it was something along the lines of, "Well, you know, uh, it, it, it's an act. Just just go and do it." You know, it's uh, so there was no real help from anybody, and certainly no training.
3: Just to make it clear for uh, the listeners, obviously that was a long time ago, and now undercover policing is totally different with total different training intense training uh which which you were sort of the start of that type of police work
2: yeah so i'm told well i I mean certainly no training in my day and i am led to believe that uh, there is a thorough training regime now and uh, in fact it was quite pleasing in a way that uh, another former undercover cop uh, neil woods who's written one or two books with uh, a co-writer. Uh, he, a- he actually told me in an email that uh, Operation Julie is still the reference point for uh, all undercover operations Britain. So that was actually quite amazing in a way that we, we seem to have uh, some legacy or left some legacy for the better in terms of undercover training, what to do and what not to do what cover names did you use well very early on uh, intuitively I think uh, very early on we both decided to keep our real first names uh, Steve most people through my life has known me as Steve even though uh, I'm christened baptized as Stephen with a PH uh, but, but most of my life if somebody shouted Stephen, I, I'm thinking, hello, where's my mum? <laughs> she was about the only person that ever used to call me Stephen. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we decided to keep our first name, so Steve in my case and Eric in in Eric's case, funnily enough. Um, the the surnames uh, still to this day don't have a clue where they came from. Uh, Eric... Chose Walker. I have a sneaky feeling that may have had something to do with uh, the Walker brothers, who uh, were reasonably popular uh, at that time, uh, music-wise, or perhaps just a little bit earlier. Uh, And in my case, Jackson, I have no clue where that came from at all. No clue.
3: And your cover story for The Infiltration was... uh made up between yourselves what was that yeah it was and i have to give i have to
2: give eric most of the credit if not all the credit for the for the main thrust of the cover story that uh, in real in real life uh, eric uh, had and has a brother called trevor and uh, so sort of the story was that uh, we were in wales because trevor had been busted for a minor crime a minor drugs offence, possession or something. And he decided to abscond, in other words, not answer his bail, not go to court. And um, Eric and Trevor's mother, dear old mum, was worried about Trevor and had sent Eric out on a a mission to try and find him because the rumour was that he was living on some kind of hippie commune in mid Wales. So that gave us a reason to be there in the first place. The rest of our cover story was basically, and it helped cover for, for our absences, too. Uh, and I think I was instrumental in cobbling this part together, is that we were used car dealers because both of us had a, a love of cars and, and both of us knew a fair bit about cars. So our, uh, the other part of our cover story was that, that we, we were used car dealers And that was part of the cover too was that uh, Dick Lee saw the the force of our argument because we both insisted that we should have a criminal record and it was also important that uh, the criminal record didn't show that we had done any time behind bars because uh, in prisons people get to know uh, the ins and outs of inmates there and uh, it would have been a crass mistake if we'd have tried to tell people that we'd actually done time in a particular jail because uh you know you can bet that somebody would know somebody that actually knows that that prison particularly well they would soon discover that we were not who we said we were so our criminal records that were falsified um really indicated minor drugs offenses and i think in my my case was a minor assault as well and the other thing that dick lee did for us was uh, arrange for false driver's licenses in our cover names so at least we had something to go on oh the the van also joined in the deception too it was registered to eric walker eric's cover name so yeah that's how we we set about it the the other great asset as well when we set up our cover was that Eric being a Gloucester man he he knew all about the country Uh, he knew all about poaching country ways he knew about tree felling so on and so forth and he had a, a chainsaw we used to carry that chainsaw petrol driven chainsaw we used to carry that chainsaw all the time in the back of the van and it, uh, it, that also was a useful cover because we used to lock trees and cut down trees for various people in that uh, rural community. Um, so, all in all, we, we established ourselves there over time. The The cover was also important because we both felt comfortable with what we were saying. And also, we weren't really, although we, as time went by, we became more and more hippie-looking as time went by, but we weren't out and out saying to anybody, look, I'm a hippie, or we are hippies. So, yeah, we fitted in, and uh, we we did various jobs for the hippies that were in the area, but at no stage uh, did we ever try and pretend that we were hippies ourselves. I mean, ultimately the appearance that we were trying to give and it did work, uh, was that, uh, you know, we were not averse to breaking the law. We were not averse to dealing in drugs. I mean, we didn't deal in drugs per se. Uh, But we were often asked about whether we could supply and so on and so forth. And, uh, And we were party to a lot of conversations about the importation of drugs. Outside of uh, Smiles' company, at I hasten to add, in various, usually in the pubs uh, in Tregera, particularly the Red Lion in Tregera.
1: I'm guessing it's really easier if you use your own first name, because if you were in a situation where you were undercover and somebody shouted to you, say, John, you know, you, you would automatically react because that's your name so there'd be no reason to to change your first name because that would sound more natural when you're in conversation or responding to people
3: wouldn't it yeah i mean it's quite natural that you know if Stephen at that stage for 29 years he'd been called steve if he changed his christian name and and his surname there is a danger that if somebody said something and he didn't react as we know, smiles and others people who he's trying to infiltrate suddenly get an inkling that that's strange, he doesn't respond or, like we said, you've got to be natural, you've got to be comfortable in your role, so it it makes perfect sense and that's what Stephen says, keep your first name because that's what you're used to and you must never give any inclination that you, you're not who you say you are or, or show nervousness and or forgetfulness, if you forget your name. Something would then click that uh, this guy's not right.
1: Yeah, and, and the other thing about your cover story is you've got to keep it simple because the more complicated it is, the more you've got to remember and if you weren't on your guard and you weren't able to remember all those details, you might get found out. So basically, keep it simple, keep it believable keep it reasonable
3: yeah and uh, you know they were infiltrating smiles particularly on on and and his associates and uh, of course at that time in in mid-wales and other parts of the country we had the 60s and 70s the pop festivals the hippie movement people dropping out of society as we know it today wanting a more uh, simpler life so there was lots of people milling around and setting up camps. And when we went to Clan Dewey Breffery, we uh, we people, the residents there, mentioned that uh, you know the the area was full of strangers, and these camps were set up in yeah, woods yeah. and sort of areas away from small villages. And they came into the villages to shop, to use the pub. So it
1: it didn't ring any alarm bells, did it? Not
3: at all. And if and as long as they kept the nerve, they weren't nervous. They they were believable and credible, and acted as though they were two friends, which that's, that was the story. They were they were sort of in the position where you get away with it.
1: Yeah, and you go drinking and associating in the local pubs, and you're gonna be you're gonna be accepted.
3: And of course, Eric's brother was the real reason they gave for trying to find him because he'd run away from been on bail at court and that happens and it's not uncommon and it's not a a tall story that people think well that's strange i have never heard of that one before and there were the people the area with the hippies they would possibly go and live with those people and hide away so all that fit and of course Stephen could speak about dealing in cars because he had bought and sold cars So everything that you cover stories should sort of incorporate is things that if you're challenged and somebody said, oh, what about this car or that car? You can answer it without Mm. tripping yourself up thinking, I wish I hadn't said that.
1: And stick to what you know. Stick to what you know. Yeah. I mean, it is quite a close-knit community, even now, all these years later. Because when we went to Breffy and, and stayed there, we walked in the new inn. They they used to tourists. It's fair to say to say that, isn't it? But we walked in the new inn, and it just went quiet, didn't it?
3: And they're all speaking Welsh. And they were all
1: speaking Welsh.
3: So you know, unless you could speak Welsh and pass yourself off as a Welshman, you uh,
1: we stood out. Didn't we stood we? out. Yes. We stood out as tourists. <laughs> yes, in a dissimilar way that Stephen and Eric back in the nineteen seventies didn't stand out because they were perceivably part of that whole hippie community, travelling community at the time.
3: And I think also, going back to then, people didn't travel on holidays like we do today. No. They don't go to these little remote villages. Now they buy, English people buy these little cottages as holiday cottages, as second homes. And I don't think, if I remember right, because we were very young then, but I don't think that... A lot of travel went on in those sort of areas, so to see English people on holiday wasn't normal. I mean, the hippies changed all that, didn't they?
1: Yeah, I, I don't. I didn't go anywhere other than Skegness yeah. on the east coast of of England uh, on holiday. We certainly we certainly wouldn't have even thought about going to uh, to Wales. No. Yeah, and I think how. Undercover policing has progressed from those times, from the 1970s through the decades thereafter, is a whole subject within itself. And hopefully, we'll be able to revisit that and come back to that in future podcast episodes. Yeah.
3: So, having been briefed up by Dick Lee, uh, between you and Eric. Established a cover story, a reason for being there, and your cover names. Can you tell us about the first date you arrived on your uh, assignment?
2: I can remember it well. Uh, June the 3rd, 1976. Uh, And 1976, for anybody that's as old as me will recall, was one of the hottest and most glorious summers in the history of Britain. It was just an absolutely stunning summer and it was a really hot, typical hot summer's day. We arrived June the 3rd, 1976, and we arrived in the van. Uh, Dick had authorised the princely sum of £500 to go and buy a van, so that was all done. So we arrived in the van and um, the the first place we made for was the, the new inn in Klandowie Brevi you know it seems to be the sensible place to go you know if you want to know anything in a, in any place whether it be a small village or a town or what have you um the place to go is the local pub so in we marched to the local pub and there were just a few locals in there you Tell there were locals because they were mostly chatting away in Welsh mainly Welsh the odd English word we thrown in We had a description of Smiles, I'd seen his photograph but there was no sign of Smiles at all. So, we actually got chatting to the landlady, who was a very, very pleasant woman. And she was most uh, curious as to what we were doing there. I mean, number one, we're in her home, even though it's a pub, it's still her home. And number two, who are these two strangers? Um, So, we told her the story about Trevor and she was uh, Eric's missing brother. So she was most uh, intrigued, most interested, and in fact, on every occasion, nearly every occasion, we saw her. Uh, subsequently, she was asked, "Oh, how are you going on with looking for Trevor?" You know. Um, so yeah, we got we got chatting to the landlady mostly, and and that was it. We had a couple of beers, and by the time we left there, about eight thirty, nine thirty, or something, we decided to find somewhere to park up for the night. And sleep. Uh, we had a couple of sleeping bags in the back, we had a, a primer stove, we had a kettle, we had the basic essentials uh, to make a cup of tea. So we we, we drove up uh, a road and got a clue where we were going. It was obviously going, we were going up and up and up, up the side of a mountain and uh, purely by luck we found a little pull-off near a five bar gate which was amply big enough to take the van, park the van up and it was next door to a running stream very fast running stream and a little wooden copse and as it turned out we were so comfortable there we, we decided to spend virtually every night there uh, until the weather turned really bad much later in the year but certainly throughout the whole of the glorious summer uh, of 1976 that's where you could find us in the in the parked up alongside the mountain when we weren't in the pub, that was. <laughs> so yeah,
3: I take it that while you were deployed in the undercover role, a lot of other police work was still being conducted, either surveillance or technical surveillance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There was uh, all kinds of inquiries that were still going on. Uh,
2: normal inquiries, sifting through records. Uh, other surveillance was going on, particularly in London, uh, Henry Todd's uh, residence, Henry Todd's home, in Maida Vale I think it was. There were all kinds of inquiries going on, overseas inquiries being made about uh, people like Anna Boldy, trying to track down where Jerry Thomas was now. There were all kinds of things going on at the time that we were In Klandawi Brevi, I mean, uh, I think the vast majority of the squad forgot we were there for quite some time. They thought we were on holiday. (laughs) We were. (laughs) In a lot of ways, we were, actually. uh, In a lot of ways, we were. I'm the first one to admit that because I I have said, and I say again, that, uh, I mean, our morning started we open up the back of the van, open up the doors. We have a wash in the mountain stream. We cook bacon and eggs on the on the stove. We make ourselves tea. Occasionally, a farmer would pass by in his land rover, give us a little cheery wave. <laughs> you know that was it. And then you know we still had. This is, this is probably be, I don't know, this could be 6.30, 7, 7.30 in the morning we still had uh, a lot of time to kill before the pubs opened because that was where we did our work, so to speak, <laughs> work in inverted commas, uh, so you know, we take a drive up towards Plymbriani and that's where we discovered the beautiful dipping pool which was uh, overhead height, crystal clear water, cold as hell but that was beautiful on a on a 25, 30 degrees Celsius day, fantastic. We'd dive in there and have a little swim in there, totally naked, skinny dipping. <laughs> you know, there was nobody nobody watching. There was only Eric there and me there. <laughs> and Eric wasn't interested in me and I wasn't interested in him. And our real work started in the pub.
3: Did you actually meet your uh, target, Smiles?
2: Yes, we met him the very next day, June the 4th. Uh, Eric and I walked back in the new inn, and uh, lo and behold, uh, there were Smiles sat on a bar stool. He swivelled round as soon as we walked in, uh, wondering who the hell was coming in and other two strangers. And uh, it was obviously, it was smiles straight away. And it was obvious why they called him Smiles. I mean, he could, he could smile for England, you know, and a, a beautiful set of teeth, you know, good-looking, handsome man. Uh, you know, he sort of had a, an aura about him, and I'd never even kind of met him as yet. You know, I'd seen, walked into the pub, and there he was. He was with a good friend of his, uh, Buzz, and... Um, they were sat uh, sat at the bar and um, we had a couple of beers and, and, and quite a chat with, uh, with, mainly with Smiles, Buzz was very introverted, very quiet. Uh, we later found out, I think, that the landlord and his wife were away for the afternoon or the day or the evening or whatever and Smiles was so well trusted, so well known in the village that he was temporarily looking after the new inn. So he, uh, he gave Buzz the nod and um, Buzz went behind the bar and poured us a couple of pints.
3: You described how you met Smiles uh, the first day or the second day of your infiltration, had a conversation with him. How did it develop from there? Um, it
2: developed from there. I think it was probably, I think he was away for a little while, a short while, maybe a week or so. And uh, the next time we had any meeting or dealings with Smiles was uh, one day we were in uh, we were in the new inn again and uh, we met with two characters called Blue and Mac. Now Blue and Mac were friends of Smiles and at some stage, I can't remember when, we also met uh, a guy called Happy. Well I've called him Happy in my book that's not his real name, and I've never ever revealed his real name for fairly obvious reasons. Uh, anyway, Happy was also a—he was a local lad from Tregaron. Mac was a kind of, uh, well, definitely a hippie, and he was into uh, horses, uh, breeding horses. Uh, Blue was a very—he was a big guy. He was, um, and he travelled an awful lot, and he was definitely. Uh, Well, he dressed very much like a hippie with a Stetson hat and a feather in the hat and long hair, the beard and everything. So, through Blue and Mac, we eventually, the next time we met Smiles was, uh, our Smiles wandered in the pub one day after a short absence. And uh, we all got talking, that's Blue, Mac, Eric, myself, Smiles. Smiles eventually invited us all back for a game of cards to his to his home, which is only a short walking distance from the new inn. And uh, we ended up playing cards till all hours of the night, and carried on drinking, and uh, uh, a lot of um, weed or hash or both came out. Uh, so, as a as a pioneering undercover, cop, I had a decision to make: Do I? Do I partake in smoking this weed and hash or do I say oh no I I don't use it and uh, I took the decision very deliberately to to partake and uh, we all had a smoke and played cards and got drunk and got very stoned so that was the next time that uh, Eric and I saw smiles and the first time we'd actually been into his home and uh, over a period of months, it just carried on from there. We 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 always we made a thing really of not uh, not chasing after smiles, not trying to get in his face or or um, make it obvious that uh, we were interested in it. So it was a question of wait and see, wait and see, wait and see. And if we bumped into him and we spent some time in his company, fine. If we didn't there'd always be another occasion and there were many, many occasions where we bumped into him and spent time in his company either in the new inn or as time went by it became more and more common for us to go around to his home and spend time uh, in his company, in his home where we met uh, his wife, Mary, well I I don't think they were married but anyway Mary and uh, and, and their child. So, yeah, it kind of progressed gradually over a period of time, the relationship with uh, with Smiles and our interaction with him.
3: Uh, Sally and I recently visited uh, Klandawi Breffy. Uh, we went to the new inn, and uh, Smiles House, if I'm correct, is, is it pronounced Y-Glynn? In uh, as as it's written, I don't know how you pronounce it in Welsh.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think in Welsh, I think it's more accurate to pronounce it elyn Elin. Why is is pronounced as E?
3: And, and the house is still there, which we've took some photographs of, and the new inn. It was only a hundred yards from the pub, if that. It's only a small village, as we, as you've described.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think it's about a hundred yards, and eventually. As time went by and the winter approached and we stopped living in the van and we found a a cottage to rent, Car We found that cottage to rent, that was kind of a hundred yards the other way away from, from Smiles. So at one time we were living, well we were neighbors, you know, we were about 200 yards away from each other with the new inn smack bang in the middle.
1: I mean really working undercover it's it's all a waiting game isn't it it's all about fitting into the community and watching observing being very patient and you know all about being patient don't you
3: well the essence is to if you you can liken it to making friends if you joined a club or a new neighbor or somebody you met in the pub You build up a relationship over time and then you become friends and then you might invite them round to your house and vice versa. It doesn't happen straight away all at once. And that was clearly what Stephen and Eric were trying to achieve by introducing themselves into the pub, being seen in the area, doing odd jobs for people in the area. All that sort of activity and also the cover story, the looking for Eric's brother, gave them... The reasons for being there and slowly slowly they they, they gain the confidence of Smiles and the other villagers that here we are we're we're here for another drink and a laugh and a joke which what they did and slowly they got invited into Smiles Circle and you know Smiles probably didn't suspect a lot at that time.
1: No because they didn't go down the path of sort of Putting themselves in Smiles' way, or chasing Smiles, or being everywhere where he was, because that would have raised suspicions, wouldn't it? They were—they just fitted in. They just melted into the the background, the community. They were just part of the community, and they were—they were accepted for that.
3: And they had cover stories for when they were absent. They were going car dealing or doing other jobs, so they, they came and went, which is what you would normally do you're not going yeah. to spend every minute of every day trying to engage smiles in conversation are you
1: and you've got to look at the relationship that smiles and Stephen and eric had and it's how far how far do you go in trying to be accepted into that uh, into that community and obviously Stephen came across the question of there's drugs being passed about do I do I take the drugs or do I say no thank you and that's that's quite a difficult thing he obviously made the decision that to be credible that there was no alternative that he had to take he had to take drugs um but it, it's, a, it's a difficult one, isn't it? And, and I know things are very, very different and, and the training and the rules have evolved over the years for undercover officers, but, but it is very difficult. You know, do you say yes or, or do you say no? And that's something that Stephen will have to increasingly deal with during the progress of the story of Operation Julie.
3: I mean I think when you look at and talk to Stephen and we know we've already said many times that there wasn't any training or rules so I think Stephen took the and Eric took the view that to get the confidence of Smiles and the others who Smiles associated with is that you know, you've know, you got to be a bit like them and we know from what Stephen said and is going to say that Smiles had a lot of money because he was drug dealing. He was freely spending money on alcohol, treating people in the pub and everybody. And as we know, having been there, there's not a lot to do other than go to the pub. No. (laughs) You know, it's miles from anywhere. Um, Some of them are farmers, some of, you know, various occupations. But as a leisure activity, the pub is the hub of the village. So, of course, naturally, you drink a lot, because that's all there is to do. So... Stephen makes no bones about it that they they drank huge amounts of alcohol and of course inevitably at some stage drugs are introduced for recreation from Smiles he wasn't trying to sell them wholesale to uh, to them because he didn't want anybody to know that's what he was doing but he clearly took them and so did all his associates so they took the decision that uh, that's what they got to do Ethically, is that right or wrong? Things were different then to they are now, as we know, and we'll come on to new new ways of doing things. But then, when in Rome, there was a Roman.
1: But what do you think to this, John? Do you think the ends justifies the means? Does the taking of drugs justify being accepted into that circle of people and being able to... Observe any criminal activities. Does that just does do the means justify the ends? Do you think?
3: Well, in modern thinking, we we do risk assessments and all various things, and we use a word which probably they didn't then. Is is your actions proportionate to what you're trying to achieve? Yeah. Now, is drinking alcohol a bit much than you should taking a few drugs? It was cannabis mainly, which was not the most serious, dangerous drug, you know, and others were about. Does that justify the fact that you're trying to infiltrate and shut down an organisation which is wholesale selling huge quantities of LSD through the country? And And worldwide. And worldwide, causing such devastation and destruction to a lot of people and that's what you have to weigh up is is doing that what they did justifiable in the end game and i think it was that's my th- personal opinion i've not got my hat on as a as a policeman but but you, uh, th- that's what it is
1: yeah and i think when we come to look at these things that hindsight's a marvelous thing isn't mm. it
3: and and we, you know in many other walks of life with criminality you know We've now got a lot more armed crime and terrorism, and and if police and other agencies have to open fire and kill them, that's justifiable because it stops the end game, which was a lot worse if we didn't. And that's exactly as I view this, my personal opinion. And of course, there was no criticism of them. No. At the eventual trials and court. No, it's, not at all. I think it was well. Known what they'd done quite clearly, and as I say, things are different now. But we're talking about then, and that's what they had to do.
1: Yeah, I mean, at at the moment, there there are these um, current controversies because there's the undercover policing enquiry that's going off at the moment, and that's that's sort of throwing up quite a few um, dark issues, isn't it? Like we've we've already talked about. Uh, what name do you take on and um, we've said you know you are best off take it keeping your own first name and changing changing your surname but what some officers were doing that the inquiry has highlighted is they were using the identity of deceased children and that's a that's a current day controversy isn't it
3: well it is i mean if we look at the some of the films day of the jackal he did that and uh, Yeah,
1: that was the storyline there, wasn't it? It was.
3: And of course, since Stephen Bentley's day in the 70s, undercover policing and undercover uh, or use of undercover operatives, be it for security services, the police, the army, it's become known what we do because the public are more aware of it, especially criminals, because of course when... They have to give evidence at trials. Some of these undercover officers have to appear. So it's become an open secret. And, of course, that is good in one sense because it gets them convicted, but bad in another that it exposes police tactics and methods which they will now use to combat it. So, of course, Stephen and Eric posed as the uh, undercover story they gave which was a fairly simple one, but mm. was effective in that time, now it's a whole different ball game, And, of course, people can check your story out. So you've got to have... Um,
1: There's a whole social media thing, isn't well, there? Well, yes.
3: And... and, of course, people now have got to go, or undercover operatives have got to go, with a very, very robust story and also be able to stand being checked out by people behind the scenes so if you've got a driving license or a, a passport in a name they can go and check in the birth register to see if you were born and you did exist and of course the age groups and all the rest of it so it's a very very awkward position to be in really And the undercover inquiry which has been going several years now and still got several years more to go has uncovered many areas which are so sensitive that it's slowly taking a long time to, to and what the yeah. conclusions will be I don't know we'll have to wait and see and that again will be subject of a other podcast, won't it
1: yeah I, I think as I've said before the whole area of undercover policing and how it's evolved over the decades is a really interesting area and one that should be subject of future podcast episodes.
3: Yeah I mean we're sat in our little studio which is our library as well and we're surrounded by hundreds of books which most of them are mine on espionage and undercover work and spying, police work and all the rest. It's all very much one and the same and historically we've had spies forever and looking forward we'll have spies forever going forward. Mm. They cannot find any other way although we have got more electronic means now but you can't beat somebody on the ground talking to the villains listening and knowing what they're planning and doing and it always will be so having uh, met him several times and no doubt developed a relationship with him when did anything of a positive nature occur uh
2: positive nature well it it i suppose it depends in a lot of ways what's meant by positive bearing in mind that our brief was uh was always realistic that it was felt very unlikely that smars would actually deal with us in terms of drugs and that turned out to be very true it was uh he was wary with anybody you know and until he got to know us better you know there was there was no question of drugs arising or being mentioned apart from uh, in some cryptic ways he mentioned it but um, one one occasion that does come to mind is um, just before Christmas 1976 and uh, I was stood there in the uh, in the lavatory of uh, the urinals of uh, the new inn, uh, having a pee, and uh, smiles. I was aware of somebody stood next to me. As I glanced over out of the corner of my eye, I saw the telltale black and white check coat, which he used to wear a lot in winter, and uh, looked over, and indeed it was smiles, and he was holding his hand out. So I just automatically, really, went to touch his hand And uh, he thrust uh, a block of uh, cannabis into my hand and said, Happy Christmas, pal, you know, so, you know, worse that effect. I said, oh, thanks very much. And then when I uh, looked at it properly a bit later, I could see it was a very, very fresh piece of uh, cannabis resin, which, of course, went into uh, an evidence bank eventually. But, yeah, there were occasions before that uh, where it was obvious he was becoming more and more relaxed in our company. Uh, The classic occasion really was um, when we met – it was in a pub in Tregaran, wasn't in the new inn, and we met a very large black gentleman who turned out to be a, a doctor. He was from the Sudan originally but he was a a doctor at uh, one of the local hospitals, and he got into our company. He was fun. He was a great character, great big belly laugh. Anyway, long story short, Smiles invited uh, the doctor, myself, Eric, and I'm sure one or two others back to his home, and uh, that's where Smiles pulled out uh, cocaine from some hidden vestibule somewhere and proceeded to spread it out on a on a, a mirrored top or a glass table and cut it up and then he produced his, uh, his banknote, rolled it up, started snorting his cocaine, shouting all the time, what's the effects of this is fantastic stuff, it's not only old cheap rubbish, it's, it's the best. So there again, you know, I was in that spot where, well, hang on, what the hell do I do here? I'm undercover. Um, I'd already been smoking weed and hash quite often in his company, and uh, I thought, "Well, what do I do?" You know, and to be honest with you, it terrified me. I'm thinking, oh, know, cocaine. This is a class A drug. This is, you know, this is serious. You know, what's he going to do to me? Is he going to harm me?" Once again, being undercover, I took the decision. Well, there's no way I can blow my cover, and it would be kind of weird, and I didn't want any soft and stupid excuses to come out. So uh, I partook, had some cocaine, not once but twice that evening and that's the evening we went off to Lampeter. That was, um, that was myself, Smiles, uh, the hospital doctor and Mary Smiles's wife. All four of us went off in a taxi to Lampeter where Smiles treated us royally, paid for everything and it must have cost a small fortune because we were drinking bottles of champagne, and all kinds of other stuff. And it was a a great evening, fueled, no doubt, by lots of alcohol and uh, and by some cocaine as well. So, you know, that was a a sign that uh, he was uh, getting more and more relaxed with us. And that was the night where Eric babysat in uh, his absence and Mary's absence, looking after the kids. So... um, yeah, that was a classic sign that things were were, were, were relaxed. Um, the other interesting episode with Smiles was, again, another boozy night this time. I think it was the Railway Steps pub in, uh, in Tregeran. We, we'd been briefed, you know, our general brief was to uh, be eyes and ears on the ground, but at one particular time, Dick Lee gave us a specific brief to look out and identify it. Or a character called Doug, and that's all we had on it. That his name was Doug, and uh, Doug was believed to be, and in fact it was later confirmed, was uh, was Smiles' main distributor in, or one of his main distributors, Doug drug dealers in London. And uh, lo and behold, we're drinking heavily one night in Tregaron, and. Um, Smiles meets up with this guy and they're obviously big buddies and uh, Eric and I hear Smiles address him as Doug so we're thinking ah, is, is this the Doug if it's all possible we had to identify him and by identifying him it meant finding out everything about him, his full name, his date of birth so on and so forth so that he could be truly identified and put in the system and th- this was I mean, this was a night where, where um, we were drinking for England, you know, I mean, there was so much drunk, it was unbelievable. And then at one stage, Smiles, in his wisdom, decided to leave. So that left me, Eric and Doug. Well, this was our golden opportunity. So I said to Doug, where are you staying tonight? And he said, Smiles, or he slurred the word, Smiles. I said, fine, I said, we're going back to the village, Klandawi Brevi. We'll give you a lift and we you know we had the old transit van parked nearby yeah we'll give you a lift Doug yeah okay said he so as we leave the pub and we're walking down the high street I flicked my hip and sent him through uh, a plate glass window thank God it didn't kill him but anyway he went through the plate glass window and uh, the next thing is that before we drive off we go to a telephone kiosk and dial 999 uh, so I say something like, uh, "Oh yeah, I want the police." I was a guy who smashed the plate glass window in the uh, high street here. So uh, the next news we hear, the very next day when we're in touch with devices, is that uh, Doug has been arrested and taken to Tregaron Police Station, and there he was fingerprinted, photographed, and everything. And it turned out to be Douglas John Flanagan, who indeed was convicted of being. Uh, a distributor of LSD for smiles in London so we did identify the Doug
3: So Sally, we've covered a lot of ground uh, so far in the podcast setting up a major operation throughout the country and and other countries besides uh, the United Kingdom training of undercover police officers that's never done it before obviously cover roles and uh, excuses that they've uh, learnt and mastered to to be confident to go and do this job so what do you think so far of where it is?
1: Well, suffice to say that Um, Stephen's now on the second part of his participation in Operation Julie and he and Eric are now well-established in Tlandowi Breffy and it would appear that Smiles is comfortable in their presence and also Smiles' friends, associates and family. But it's fair to say that, that this is only part of the work that those involved in Operation Julie were actually doing. We've still got the surveillance on Richard Kemp and Christine Bott at their cottage near Tregaron. We've got the surveillance going, uh, the comings and goings at 25 Seymour Road, Hampton Wick, London, where Henry Todd was running his own LSD manufacturing laboratory. And then there's other places around the world that enquiries are being made and the whole picture is being drawn together. So we're now in that situation where Operation Julie is spreading out its feelers and taking in more and more participants and more and more evidence and background.
3: And one of the areas where Stephen and Eric helped the enquiry go forward was that they identified the man called Doug who Dick had tasked them with trying to find his identity. And I suspect, looking at, from a police background, through the eyes of of myself, that other areas in the country have picked up Doug as being a participant in the conspiracy to supply drugs. But all they knew, he was called Doug, and they were desperate to find out who Doug was. So uh, when he appeared in Clan Dewy Stephen and Eric did a little bit of uh, unorthodox police work didn't they
1: yeah and that was <laughs> that was a very dramatic way of going about trying to identify somebody which I wouldn't recommend to uh, to well, en- anybody I'm sure that's not in the police manual but well I think But that, it was effective at the time
3: and again going back to how undercover people operate, you know, that was a new experience and I think by the sound of it there was a lot of drink consumed by all parties that night and Stephen took the opportunities, as he described, to uh, establish Doug's identity, which he did. Are we back to, does the end
1: justify the means?
3: Well, I suppose it is, isn't it, really, but people will comment on it, not agree or agree, but they did what they did, having been out all day drinking by the sound of it with the others. And uh, as a result of him being arrested, they actually identified who he was, which was a plus point for the uh, Operation Julie enquiry, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But what would you say about how they did it?
1: I think it's it's a, I think it's, it's a difficult one. I mean, we always come back to hindsight being a wonderful thing, and the point was... That although he went through a window, he was he was fine. He was he was uninjured, and Stephen went to the telephone box to report that a man had just damaged this this window. So aid was called pretty quickly. So I think if you look at all of those aspects, um, I'd like to think no harm done, and. They identified who this uh, elusive Doug was, and they fingerprinted, photographed him, identified him, found out who he was, and that helped in
3: the uh, in the operation Julie.
1: That that helped
3: to identify
1: him. I mean,
3: we're looking back forty years, aren't we? Roundabout. Yeah. And of course, things are different today, as we keep saying, and that's that was then, and now is now. This is now. And. Uh, as I say, people will have their own opinions like we have of does the uh, means justify the end, isn't it? And we could debate it all week and year, I think.
1: We could and I think sometimes we we sit here in in the twenty first century, looking back at what happened decades ago, and it's fair to say things were different in the seventies. I'm not saying they were better, I'm not saying they were worse, but they were different. And things have moved on and things have progressed. But we are now looking at Operation Julie with twenty first century eyes. And I think that's that's kind of a that's kind of a big leap mm. to actually do. Well that just about rounds up episode two, but we're really hoping that you'll be back to listen in two weeks' time to the next episode. You can contact us and talk to us about anything that we've spoken about on the podcast and there's two ways you can do that. One is the website, truecrimeinvestigators.co.uk or via the Twitter and it's twitter.com forward slash truecrime, I-N-V-E-S So think about what you want to ask us and get in touch. We'd like to hear from you. And before we go, we want to tell everybody listening about our exciting news, and that's this new event that we are both involved in, and that's CrimeCon. The world's number one true crime event is coming to London on June the 12th and the 13th, 2021. There you can get inside the minds of serial killers and psychopaths, you can learn from leading criminologists, you can hear from families and survivors... Meet your favourite true crime podcasters or immerse yourself in forensic evidence and delve deeper into unsolved crimes. CrimeCon is the ultimate true crime weekend and it's partnered by Crime and Investigation. We will certainly both be there alongside other amazing true crime podcasters. So why don't you come and talk to us? Ask us a question about the show and the different subjects that we've covered so far. Tickets are on sale now. And we have an exclusive offer where you can get 10% off the ticket price when you use the code INVESTIGATORS at the checkout. And for more information about getting your ticket, visit CrimeCon.co.uk. But turning back to Operation Julie, things are going to certainly heat up, aren't they, John? And in the next episode, Stephen will tell us how we got even closer to Smiles, close enough that he might even consider breaking his cover
0: Thank you for taking the time to listen to the True Crime Investigators UK podcast This show was researched, produced and presented by John and Sally The narrator was Richard Ashwell it was edited and produced for Cornucopia Radio by Peter Beeston. The excerpt at the start of this episode was taken from Undercover Operation Julie, the Inside Story by Stephen Bentley and was used with the kind permission of Stephen Bentley and Worldmark Films Limited for exclusive use on this podcast. We are asked to advise that any further use of any part of the excerpts by any means whatsoever is not permissible. You can find out more information and case notes about Operation Julie by visiting our website at truecrimeinvestigators.co.uk. On the website, you'll also be able to send us messages, discover subscription links for all podcast platforms, and follow us on all our social media accounts. Make sure you subscribe to this feed so you can automatically get new regular episodes as soon as we release them. And also, if you enjoy the series, we'd really appreciate you leaving a review or star racing in your favourite podcast application. Your support will help us grow and expand our true crime investigations even further. Thank you.